Welcome to A Younger Voice, your essential youth guide to politics. I'm your host, Benjamin Glover. Today, a Republican candidate for U.S. Senate will discuss how he plans to appeal to young voters in one of the most progressive states in the country. Here's that interview now. I'm here today with Zach Cordham, who's running for Senate in California as a Republican. He's a software engineer and entrepreneur. Thanks for coming on, Zach. Yeah, of course. So usually, you know, we give our candidates an opportunity to share their stump speech, a little bit of background about themselves. Um, so yeah, would you like to share a little bit of that? Sure. So yeah, as you mentioned, I'm currently working to become a, a software computer engineer, uh, currently mostly in the student phase. And I also founded a social media startup called Surf, which is centered around providing uh, an optimal experience for users without data theft or any form of political persecution and that sort of thing. I also lead a nonprofit called Closing the Divide, which is dedicated towards expanding technological access to people around the world. And I guess generally the, the common theme here is, you know, a lot of tech stuff, a lot of CS stuff, a lot of uh, that sort of domain. And I'm also the son of two Egyptian immigrants, but born and raised here in the United States. And yeah, I guess that's pretty much a good enough background. Mm. Yeah. So I guess to expand on that a little bit, um, what made you want to run for Senate? Primarily frustration. And frustration not only with the politicians in power, but also with, I guess you could say, the weird dynamic that has existed, especially in California, with regard to how people vote, who people vote for, and what comes to mind when they're voting. So it's a combination of trying to encourage voters to be more critical in terms of considering candidates, while at the same time also challenging the current status quo and the current, I guess you could say, establishment that exists within politics, especially here in California. Mm. So, um... That's actually a great segue into my first question here is, is I want to talk about that a little bit more and more about the electorate of California. So about one in five voters in California are under the age of 30. And I want to ask you specifically, what do you believe your campaign message is specifically to them? What, what, what would make somebody who's, you know, 27, maybe dissatisfied with a lot of the things that are going on in California right now? What, what, what would be appealing for, uh, for you to them? I feel like the messaging that's across this campaign, it's beneficial to almost every age group, where what I'm trying to push for is essentially common sense policies, where policies are established with logical consideration, where you create policies that actually make sense to people, as opposed to what's often unfortunately happening now within California. And of course, the desire for reform and change, the desire for speedy and effective government, and that sort of thing. And I think that's incredibly appealing, not only to that age group, but to, to all age groups. Yeah, I mean, um, as a segue there, when we talk about policy, I want to talk about specifically in California, uh, according to the Department of Housing and Urban Development, there are roughly 170,000 homeless people inside of California. Um, this makes up about 30% of the nation's homeless population, even though that uh, California as a state overall only makes up 12% of the entire United States population. So um, I just, I, I want to, 
ask you, what would be your policy solution as a senator, as somebody who's going to be working with these federal legislature, uh, legislators um, to lower these numbers, lower these rates of homelessness inside of your home state? Okay, so to start, I think a large part of it is public housing. There has to be some sort of public housing infrastructure, which there are homeless shelters and that sort of thing. But I don't think it's nearly enough. But then the second issue that I think has a lot of complexity to this is the fact that even when housing is built, a lot of homeless people don't actually go to the housing or when they're offered to go to the housing, they actually refuse to go. And usually it's because of drugs and, and that sort of thing. And so you'd have to build the housing, but you'd also have to make sure that the homeless go there. And another thing that adds additional complexity to this issue is that their experiences living in the streets, in those harsh, harsh conditions, in those traumatic situations, to a large extent, for some people, it has impaired their judgment. And so, and I think, you know, there are multiple studies regarding this, but essentially, to an extent, there would have to be a sort of tough love situation where you'd have to say, you guys got to go there. You guys got to go through, through some sort of rehabilitation. We're going to give you clothes. We're going to give you a home. We're going to help you shower and that sort of thing. We're going to get you to the job interview. And then from then on, you know, if you perform well, uh, you know, good for you, you're going to go on for the rest of your life. But we, we kind of have to give in, you know, that sort of tough love. Because if we don't do that, they're just going to keep on just, you know, essentially dying in the streets. And it's a very, very bad situation. And everyone's afraid to do what's necessary. And I believe that, quite frankly, this is what's necessary. So, um I guess I I guess I would want to ask you if you could expand on that a little bit, specifically relating to, uh, you know, how if that would come in conflict with rights to personal liberty. Like I just yeah. I'm curious a little bit more about your opinion yeah. regarding that issue. I think there would have to be some sort of evaluation process. Currently, here within the United States, if you're, you know, if you're mentally not there, you have to get support in some way. There has to be some form of support. And leaving you there just to like, you know, essentially die on your own, it's not a sustainable way. It's not beneficial to anyone. In fact, it's harming those people, it's harming the people around them, it's harming the communities. And so what you're doing is you're saying, you know, if you're mentally in a big trouble, right? If you're, if you're in a big pickle because of the situations that you've been in and you just can't recover, we're gonna send you through a rehabilitation process, get you set up with the proper resources. Now, I don't think it's necessarily a violation of rights but I mean, you can see it as sort of like a rehabilitation process, like rehab. And we're gonna help you get back, back on your feet. We're gonna help you shower, get clothes. We're gonna help you get a job and all that sort of thing. So I don't believe that, you know- Okay, uh, yeah, but I, let, me, let me be more specific. Just to be clear, this would sure. be a voluntary program, right? Depends. So what I think is that um, there would have to be some sort of assessment that determines whether or not you've been traumatized to the point where your judgment has been compromised or whether or not your addiction to certain substances is impairing your judgment. Like for instance, especially like people who are severely addicted to a lot of these, uh, a lot of these drugs, to an extent their decisions become more emotional based on the desire for more dopamine as opposed to, you know, logically, I need to get out of here, I have to go get a good room, you know, I have to go shower and I have to go get a job. When you're chasing after these desires, a lot of the time, your decisions become more emotion and desire-based as opposed to logic-based. And if you're in such a bad situation, you need some sort of logic to follow in order to get yourself back up, right? Because logic will provide you with a good foundation in order to do so. Hmm. 
So okay, that's so the thought process. I'm thinking oh, sorry. Yeah. Okay, so moving on. Uh, nice, easy question. Uh, what would be the first bill you'd bring to the floor as a senator? Hmm. Are we okay? Assuming you can wave a wand and it's passed. Not okay, assuming, yeah. okay, yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking, yeah. Okay, I guess the first thing would have to be, I guess, reduction on the, the income tax for, for individual people. I guess that's the primary thing, mission. So, hmm. yeah, probably, assuming it's a progressive tax system, I'd say perhaps a 2 to 3% decrease for everyone across the board. Uh, you know, if we were to be even more idealistic, you could say we could go with a flat tax system about 25 to 27 percent. And that's that's a whole other story. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, OK, well, I, I want to move to the next question, because I sure. this is this is important when we talk about policies. We also need to talk about sure. how you get to the point where you can implement that policy. So if you were nominated in uh, March, March 5th, I believe, is the primary. Yeah, I believe around then. Yeah, around then. Um, how would you appeal to the disproportionately young and disproportionately progressive electoral base in California? Well, my approach isn't necessarily centered around a partisan approach. Personally, I'm not a fan of any of the political establishments, uh, even though I'm running as Republican. I disagree with the whole concept of voting just for the sake of your party instead of voting on what you actually believe should should be the the case, uh, and so I'm not running as a I'm not necessarily running as a platform of how how to describe it. I'm not running just to be a Republican, right? I'm running as someone who wants to create change, and I don't care whether you're Republican or Democrat. If you think that my policy set, if you think that my thought process, if you think that the ideas that I'm suggesting will be beneficial to you, your family, your community, the whole state, the whole country. And I encourage you to vote for, you know, for me, or if you believe another candidate is uh, better with that regard, you can feel free, feel free to, to vote for them as well. I don't think it should be a political basis. I don't think it should be a partisan basis. Just vote based on who you logically believe will bring the most benefit and merit based on the current situation in society. So what I'm hearing is you're not necessarily allergic to working with progressives. No, no. As long as... Um, the policies proposed are are logical. I don't have an issue with finding common ground. I think common ground is very important and it's been severely neglected by a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, speaking of common ground, I'd like to talk about a policy we have common ground on, financial transparency in government. So I want yeah. to I want to give you an opportunity to expand on this a little bit regarding specifically how you would implement this as a senator. So by financial transparency, you're referring to more clarity in terms of government spending? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I guess ideally, uh, the most just simple approach would be every single transaction that the government makes, so long it's not a very massive security threat, which in most cases is pretty much not, should be publicly posted for, for everyone to see. That's number one. Because I feel like to a large extent, especially when it comes to the military and Department of Defense, there's an immense amount of secrecy, lack of transparency, especially in terms of where money's going. And if you're paying your taxes, you have a right to know where your tax money is going. 
Mm-hmm, and I absolutely. don't think anyone should be keeping it from you. Yeah. Yeah. So another very important issue of policy to a lot of Americans, I want to talk about um, medical care. So about half of Americans have self-reported that they find paying medical bills very difficult. Um, in America, three days in the hospital could set you back $30,000, which for many people is their annual salary. Uh, what is your plan to lower these costs for Americans moving forward as a senator and as a Californian? I don't believe the issue is inherently with private health care. The issue is that private health care is severely unregulated and they have an immense amount of control over the political system where they just lobby whatever they want and they get it. I think ultimately the solution to the absurd and absolutely insane prices of healthcare and pharmaceuticals within the United States is set caps, set regulations, set extreme and strict guidelines, or actually I'd say enforcements regarding how much you can mark up your product. Let's say, let's say you have medicine A that costs you $20 to make. We have to set a cap and say, you can't go over, let's say hundred percent of profit. So you can't go above, let's say 40 bucks in terms of your, your market price. And that's going to be substantially better than what we have now, where we have a lot of medicine today where, you know, it costs, let's say, 20 bucks to make, and they charge you two grand for it. And it's absolutely absurd. And I think we need regulation with that regard. I don't, however, believe that like a fully public healthcare system will work, especially in the United States, since it's such a massive country with uh, such diverse needs. And so I believe that the better approach is to regulate private healthcare to ensure that their prices are fair and not absolutely outrageous. So uh, strict private care uh, regulation. Regarding price. Yeah. All right, great. So another financial burden kind of along the same path, hitting Americans very hard, especially right now, is inflation. It's raising costs at the grocery store. It's raising costs at the gas pump. I want to ask, you know, this is a very contentious issue from both sides, but I want to ask, as somebody who is advocating for change, advocating for a new voice, I want to understand how you'll bring a new solution or a more effective version of an existing solution to slow the rise of inflation? Ultimately, of course, I think everyone understands that inflation is a result of excessive spending by the government. So first of all, we should cut excessive spending and not spend like crazy. Second thing that I think a lot of people don't realize or don't really conceptualize about is the fact that a lot of inflation, if not the vast majority of it, comes because and I, I don't want to say this getting, it's getting a little bit more, I guess you could say conspiratorial, where a large amount of the inflation is coming from the mass printing done by the Federal Reserve because of the fact that the United States dollar doesn't really have any inherent or physical value. So the value of the US dollar is completely arbitrary. And we essentially decide, you know, if we want to print $2 trillion tomorrow, we can do it. If we want to print, you know, $1 tomorrow, we can do it. And I think that the fact that it's so arbitrary and the fact that we're spending just beyond insane amounts of money unnecessarily. It's all just creating this perfect storm of, you know, mass inflation and massive, massively horrible economic situation. Hmm. So would you advocate tying the dollar to the gold standard? Gold or, you know, I mean, there are other uh, means of doing so, but yeah, I guess gold would be the most simple and understandable way of doing so. Hmm. All right. So, um, we, we this is going to be heavy. Uh, we have to talk about this issue because it's very important for young voices today. 
Um, in the United States, the number one cause of death for people under the age of 18 is firearms. It's um, kills about kills. It has killed about 35,000 people up to now this year. Uh, there has been 550 mass shootings inside of the United States just this year, up to now. So how would you, as a senator, work to uh, work to slow, decrease uh, this gun violence issue in America? Yeah. So as you mentioned, it's a very heavy uh, topic. It's also incredibly complex where I feel like to a large extent, a lot of people are only looking at the weapon side of things, but they're not necessarily looking at who's holding the weapon side of things, where I feel like a large reason behind why we're seeing such a massive escalation in violence and crime, especially with relation to firearms, is because of something weird that's going on in terms of mental health, in terms of mental stability across the country. And I think, you know, you, you could feel free to do additional research on this, but Gun ownership in the United States has always been historically quite high relative to the rest of the world. We've always had quite a large amount of guns per capita, but we've never had a situation like this. So what we're seeing is that guns per capita isn't necessarily changing like a crazy amount, but for some reason, the shootings are just skyrocketing like crazy. And I think that means that the guns aren't inherently the issue, but something mental is going on. Now, I think, you know, there, there have to be reasonable laws and regulations regarding let's say, uh, what type of guns a citizen can reasonably own and that sort of thing. But I don't believe in banning guns because I don't think that's going to solve the issue. Because if you make guns illegal, you're not stopping criminals. Criminals are criminals because they're doing things against the law. And so if you ban guns, who's to say that criminals won't just get them illegally? That's why they're called criminals, right? Mm. So inherently, I don't think banning guns is the solution, but I think that a lot of it is based on the mental stability crisis that's happening right now within the country. So I think that's what we have to target more as opposed to, you know, banning all guns or, or whatever approaches uh, some people want to take. Okay, so um, I want to move uh, further away from the extremes here into the middle. And I want to talk about, like, I want to talk about specific policy. So I'm going to ask you, would you, would you support a system, a federally mandated background check system that prevents firearms from getting in the hands of people who are mentally ill, who have been registered as mentally ill, or who have um, other afflictions that should prevent them from owning firearms? Assuming that's pretty much the primary criteria, I'd say yes. So you would support universal background checks? Assuming that, yeah, I would support universal background checks, assuming that the criteria is purely based around, you know, their mental health or stability in terms of owning a firearm. Yeah. But if it's in any way, you know, uh, motivated by let's say socioeconomic status or race or your political standing, then of course not. Yeah. yeah, that's, I don't think anyone's seriously advocating that right now. Um, yeah. So I want to move on to my last question here uh, before the lightning round. Um, so this is, you know, I, I don't say this to be rude, but I, I want to ask you uh, in the constitution, article one, section three uh, states that uh, any person taking office as a senator must be older than the age of 30. My understanding is that you are not of the age of 30 currently, right? So according right. to uh, Senate rules of present, you wouldn't be able to take office. While you would be able to be elected, you would never be able to take the oath of office during your term, assuming, I don't know your exact age, but assuming you would yeah. not turn 30 in the next, in your next term. 
I, I guess my uh, question there would be, do you see that as an obstacle in any way or? Well, I mean, Iran, Iran knew it exists. And so let me highlight two things. First of all, assuming I, I were, were to win, what that means is that the ideas that I've suggested have made it through to a very large amount of people and it's inspired them to hopefully in the future vote, vote for change across the board, right? So even though I can't necessarily assume office within that circumstance, I think a lot of people have been inspired. I think that their mindsets have, have been you know, expanded. And I think that it sets a very good foundation for the future within my perspective. Second thing, assuming someone you know, like me, let's say, assuming I were to win, which I'd say is near impossible, you know, anything is possible. Right? I'm not saying you know, we're, we're going to go against the Constitution or anything. I'm saying maybe constitutional amendment. I, I don't know what that's going to happen. But point well, is, you know, all this stuff aside. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the very act of you being elected would not be unconstitutional. Um, yeah. According to precedent, as long as nobody objects at your taking of the oath of office, there yeah. is there has been senators who have taken office at 29 True. Um, because, you know, their birthday was two months later and nobody wanted to stand up. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess that's a hurdle way up. you'll have to pass when you get there. But I want to move on to just a quick little mini question before I move on to the lightning round. If you were to lose this race, uh, theoretically, uh, next year, would you consider running for governor in 2026? Depend, depends on the circumstances. Um, I know you're a vocal critic of Governor Newsom. <laughs> <laughs> I guess... Ultimately, I guess, you know, why not? Uh, depends on if I can reasonably win because the filing fee for governor isn't necessarily very friendly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. We'll, we'll see depending on the situation in the state. If I believe that someone's running for the office that's competent and will bring good ideas to the board and will help fix the state, there's no reason for me to, to run against them or to oppose mm. them. It would be better if I supported them. So it depends on the circumstances that unfold, yeah. All right. Okay, so I want to move on to the lightning round. Um, real quick, short questions, short answers, and then we'll wrap up here. So just a few questions. First, do you support term limits for Congress people and senators? Yeah. All right, great. That was easy. Who's your favorite senator, past or present? Uh, I like Josh Hawley. I think he's cool. Josh Hawley, huh? Yeah. All right, so nice, easy question to end it off. What's your favorite thing about California? The nature, I guess. I think, okay, California has unmatched nature, I'd say. And, you know, I'm not trying to hit on any other states. But, yeah, if you come to California and you look at the nature, yeah, it's, I don't think there's anything compared to it, maybe except for, for Hawaii. But, yeah, that's my favorite thing about California. Great. Um, yeah, so that's all the questions I have. Uh, I want to give you an opportunity to, uh, you know, say your final remarks before we go. And if people uh, are, you know, curious about your campaign and want to reach out and help, where should they go? I guess you can just DM me on Twitter. It's Zachariah Corton, so first, last name. Uh, and I guess in terms of final remarks, assuming, you know, there are a lot of voters in, in the audience, I guess. Vote logically. Vote with your mind and, like, a small combination of your heart. But essentially, you don't want to vote purely based off of emotion. Vote, vote based on who brings good ideas to the table that you believe are feasible and will work logically and will solve problems that you deem to be quite substantial in your, in your life. All right, great. Thanks for coming on, Zach. I appreciate it. Thanks for the invitation. Have a great night. You too.